Well, this morning we will have the joy of looking at the book of Daniel and seeing if we can make some sense out of it. So as has already been noted, noted it's, there's a lot in there, so we won't be able to touch on every nuance, every detail of Daniel, uh, but we'll try to get the big picture if, if that's possible. And so, you know, Daniel's a challenging book in a number of ways, um, and one, part, one reason for that is just the fact that it's in two parts that are very distinct from one another. So the first six chapters are narrative, and they have all of those stories that we learned growing up in Sunday school as kids. So there's Daniel in the lion's den, there's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. There's the handwriting on the wall. So, you know, these stories that we, we were taught as children are in the first six chapters of Daniel. And then in the last six chapters, it's really a series of visions, prophetic visions that God gives to Daniel. And they're very mysterious. They're, they're about future times, future events. They're hard to interpret. Uh, and so just kind of the, the fact that these two parts of the book are very different have, has, is one thing that has caused scholars over the years to be skeptical about the book of Daniel and think that maybe it was written by two different authors in two different, very different time periods. Um, part of the book is written in Hebrew. Part of the book is written in Aramaic, which is also kind of unique. <clears throat> and so when we think about all of those things and we begin to look at the, these prophecies that are, are given in the second half of the book, they're regarding world events that happened after Daniel, but have now, a lot of them have already taken place. And they're so specific and so accurate in the prophecy that it, it has caused a lot of scholars to think that that second half of Daniel was written by someone else. Um, and so a lot of these things take place between the 6th and 2nd centuries B.C., so some have said, well, Daniel must have been written, at least the second half must have been written by somebody later, after that time, and he's really looking back and recording the things that already happened instead of making prophetic uh, predictions, so to speak, about things that would happen in the future. And if you think about that, why would people be persuaded by that type of reasoning? Why would people think, well... Daniel must have been written later because the, the events depicted are so accurately depicted. Hindsight's 2020. Okay, it's a lot easier to look back and record something as history than it is to look into the future and, and record it accurately as, as something that hasn't happened yet. Yeah, what, what else? What, what would be the underlying root of why people would be skeptical? Yeah, we, I mean, if these things are true and they were written down beforehand, then there must be a God who knows the future. And, you know, this is kind of a, a supernatural, right? That God would have Daniel write down things yet to come. And so a lot of people that we talk to every day, a lot of people in the academic world have effectively a bias against the supernatural. They're not willing to accept that the supernatural is true. Um, but as it turns out, um, there is actually good archeological evidence 
for Daniel being the author and Daniel having written when he, when he claims to have written, which is in the 7th century B.C. So, you know, even when we think about the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's evidence in those documents that, that would lend credence to Daniel being written early on. So that's good, uh, you know, that's helpful to us. But even more important or even more convincing are, are Jesus' words himself. So over in Matthew 24, uh, Jesus says this in verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. He goes on to talk about some things. So Jesus references Daniel as the one who was the prophet who wrote these things down. And that reference that Jesus is making is in the second half of Daniel. So, you know, I'm comfortable if Jesus thought that Daniel was the author and he calls Daniel a prophet, I'm comfortable that Daniel that who claims to have written the book is the actual author of the book. So you can work through that yourself, but, but uh, I think uh, uh, Jesus is a pretty good authority. Um, what so. is abomination of Well, hold on to that. You know, we're going to get to that. Uh, you know, well, I, let's not jump the gun. I, know. <laughs> I, I, I should know Well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that here. And if we don't get to it, we'll have a little time at the end that we can ask some questions. So let, let's hold on to that for now. That's all right, yeah. So, okay, so these events then, um, two parts to the book. Um, but let, given that, let's, let's um, get a little context for the book. So turn to Daniel chapter 1. And let me just read a few verses here starting in chapter 1. Verse 1, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Asaphenahaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. Uh, And then skip down to verse 6. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. So we see here historically and kind of for context that, again, here's uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He's coming to Jerusalem. He's carrying off people into exile. And among those that he carried off, were Daniel and his friends that, that we will read about here in this prophecy. And so this happened um, based on these dates here in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. This was 605 B.C. that Daniel and his friends were carried off into, into exile. So we looked at Ezekiel last week, and this is occurring, Daniel getting carried off into exile eight years before Ezekiel was carried off into exile as well. And so then what's interesting is that Daniel's ministry spans basically the whole period of exile. So he gets carried into Babylon in the beginning, and then later in the book we'll see him perceiving that the exile period is about to end, and he's prophesying about that. So that takes place in, in chapter 9. Uh, and so you know, Daniel spent basically his entire prophetic career in Babylon uh, prophesying about the things 
that were ultimately going to happen in the future. So that, that's kind of an interesting distinction there. As we think about Ezekiel last week also was prophesying from Babylon, but prophesying, first of all, about things that were taking place then and, and were immediate. And then the future as well. Ezekiel does that as well. Uh, but and when we think about the message of the book of Daniel, what will become clear, hopefully, is that there is a recognizable pattern to life on earth in this fallen world. Things on earth tend to repeat themselves, um, and we're going to see that in Daniel. And so, really, that's kind of the, the main point this morning. The central theme or this recognizable pan, uh, pattern in Daniel is this. The enemies of God seek to usurp His glory and the worship of His people. They always have done this. They always will do this. But in the end, the Lord will reign on His throne, crush His enemies, and rescue His people for eternity. So this is kind of the main message that we see in, in the book of Daniel. And so let's look here and see how this pattern plays out. I think we'll, we'll begin to see this and the repetitiveness of this pattern. And hopefully that gives us confidence. You know, the Lord knows what's going to happen. Um, things aren't going to be essentially different than what has always been. And he is still in control of all of this. So the first thing we want to notice in Daniel is that his prophecy really is a prophecy to and about the nations. So uh, as we look down through here, one way we'll notice this is the, the use of God's name in the book of Daniel. So if you think about most Old Testament books, what name do we generally see used for God? And when, you know, whether it's narrative or other prophecy, what, what name of God do, you, do we usually see? Jehovah, Yahweh, yeah, so this, this idea of um, the covenant name between God and His people, I am, uh, and we notice that, we can see that in our English translations, because that name, Yahweh, is always in all caps, it's, it's the word Lord, and it's in all capitals, so that, that's pretty common, we'll see that throughout the, the, New, or the Old Testament. Uh, but what's interesting in Daniel is that that name of God, Yahweh, uh, Lord in all capitals, is only used in chapter 9. And it's only used there where Daniel is about to bring a prayer before the Lord. Everywhere else in the book of Daniel, the name that, it, that Daniel uses for God is the Most High. So we'll see throughout he calls God the Most High. And really I think what we're seeing, in, even in just the use of that name, is that the point is that God is not just the God of His covenant people Israel. He is God over all nations. He's God over all people, all events, all circumstances, and for all time. And so there's a clarity in the fact uh, that that is true when Daniel uses this name for God, the Most High. And so Daniel's going to focus his writing on events that occur in the future, uh, and occur to nations that were nations other than Israel. And Israel's kind of in the mix, but all of these events that will be prophesied occur in these nations that surround Israel. Uh, and so again, this is such a good reminder for us. God is active and He is sovereign over all people and all nations, and He will be glorified by all people as well. You know, we can even fast forward to, to Revelation and see that God will be worshipped by people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. 
And so we get, the, we get a hint of that. Is, that's not a new thing. That's always been the case. And so with that in mind, let's look at the kind of the overall organizing pattern of Daniel. If, if Daniel is a book that is about a pattern and about patterns, then let's see if we can see the pattern. So turn there in the second page of your handout. And um, I think what we'll see when we look for these patterns, I think we'll see <clears throat> that the narrative section of Daniel, the first six chapters, and the prophetic section, the, the last six chapters, have more to do with one another than maybe is, is evident at first. Um, and this idea that we see that in this pattern of how Daniel, the writing is organized, will help us to see that. So um, what Daniel, what, what we'll see here is that Daniel is organized in a chiastic structure or a, a chiasm. And so we've encountered this idea before as we've been going through the Old Testament. Uh, we first saw it, if you recall, way back in Exodus, in the first, uh, in a portion of, of Exodus. And so here we are, and we've seen it a couple of times. And who can remind us what exactly is a chiasm? Yeah, I mean, I used it three or four times this week. I don't know about you. <laughs> what is that? Uh, as a journalism major, I don't remember what it was. That's all right. It may not have come up in journalism class. Anybody remember what this is, this idea of chiasm? Yes. <laughs> uh, in general, the, the kind of the main focus of the story is in the middle of the story, and the, the end kind of reflects back to the, middle, the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, chi the, is the Greek for X. So if you picture an X, and even on your hand out there, you see how the kind of the outside, and then it moves towards the center. And so the focus, the, the most important thing, instead of the way other writing is, sometimes the most important thing is at the end. You know, we come to a climax. In this idea of this organizing way of doing things as a chiasm, the most important thing is in the middle, the, the biggest idea. And then out from that are kind of parallel ideas that parallel one another. And so let's just work through Daniel and, and see if we can see that pattern. And so, um, and first of all, as we talk about this, there's a lot of scholars who see this chiastic structure in Daniel, but they don't all see it the same. So there's different ways that this can be organized. And so just the one that um, we'll look at today is one, I kind of adapted this from a book by Jim Hamilton and it, that's called in, Coming in the Clouds of Heaven, I think was the name of, of his commentary. And so this is, this is kind of adapted from him. It may not be the only way to look at this, but it's one way. And so in this way of organizing, if you look at it, so chapter 1 parallels chapters 10 through 12 and the ideas that are brought forth there. Then chapters Chapter 2 parallels chapters 7 through 9. We'll see similar ideas there. Chapter 3 to chapter 6. And then the middle is chapters 4 and 5 of Daniel. And then we'll touch on what the central idea is in that. So let's look, uh, first of all, let's start from the outside and work our way in towards the middle. So um, let's look, let's see if we can see any parallels between chapter 1 and chapters 10 and 12. So the main idea described in chapter 1 is the carrying off of, the, of God's people into exile. So we just read 
that Daniel and his friends were carried into exile. So they go into exile. That, that's identified there in chapter 1. And as well, we see that God has made some distinctions here between those he has set apart from the rest. So look at verse 8 in chapter 1. <clears throat> it says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chiefs of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the, king, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. And then skip down to verse 20. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. So you see there's this distinction between God's people and all the other people. And you know, that it, it wasn't about the nutrition, nutritious value of the food. It was about the obedience and the ceremonial obedience to God's law that Daniel and his friends were wanting to be faithful to uh, and not like the others. So we see this distinction between those who are faithful, those who are gods, and others. And so then I think we are able to see a parallel then between this idea, the idea of going into exile and the distinction that is made between God's people and those who are not God's people. We see this again in chapters 10 through 12. Um, and over there, <clears throat> we see a vision that God gives to Daniel concerning historical events yet to take place. Um, and as we go through that, there's a, a long narrative in chapter 11 about things that will happen. Um, and then it, it ends like this. Look in chapter 12. Verse 1, it says, And at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So you see how that, this parallels chapter 1. In chapter 1 they went into exile. Now get down to chapter 12, and God's people are being delivered. So they're not only going to come out of exile, as, the, as we'll see in, in the book, but actually this is an eternal exile. They're being brought to everlasting life. So you go into exile at the first, God brings them out to everlasting life at the end there. And we also see this distinction, right? He, uh, Daniel talks about the fact that all will be raised, um, some to life and some to destruction. So there's this distinction that continues to exist throughout all of history. So does that kind of make sense, the parallel between 
what we see at the beginning and what we see at the end. Um, so these are kind of the bookends of Daniel. And then as we move in closer, we, we can see the, the parallel between chapters 2 and chapters 7 through 9. So in chapter 2, if you want to turn over there, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And God gives Daniel the interpretation. And look there in verse 31. Let's kind of uh, get the, the bases covered here. Verse 31, Daniel says this, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given whatever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw, the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and the interpretation sure. So um, here's this uh, dream, this vision that Nebuchadnezzar has. Daniel interprets it, and he says that basically this is a dream about four kingdoms. And the first kingdom is yours, Nebuchadnezzar, he says. So the first kingdom that's depicted as gold is Babylon. Um, and then it's going to be followed by three other kingdoms. Um, and we know, historically, we know that that next kingdom is the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. The third is Greece. And then the fourth is Rome. So these four kingdoms will happen. Um, and then the important part there is that that will be followed by an indestructible kingdom. Again, verse 44 says, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, just as it shall stand forever. So here's this, this good news that God's kingdom will be the final kingdom. It, it will be everlasting and it will be 
uh, it will be God's kingdom. And so think about that for a second. This kingdom of God that, that's prophesied here in Daniel, has it come yet? Here and not yet. Okay, got a no. Anybody else? Any other opinions? Well, heaven is already here, but we're just not there yet. Okay. Any other thoughts? Well, Jesus came actually. Okay, Jesus came. Look at what Jesus says then. Look over in uh, Mark chapter 1. Verse, starting in verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So Jesus says that this kingdom of God is at hand. When he came, so he inaugurated the kingdom. So this kingdom that Daniel uh, interprets Nebuchadnezzar's ge- uh, dream as being this eternal kingdom actually began when Christ came into the world. Jesus inaugurates the kingdom. Now, um, we know that the kingdom will be consummated. It will come to a completion there at Christ's second return. So both of these things Daniel has in mind. He, he has this kingdom in mind. He can't necessarily distinguish between you know, the first and second coming of Christ uh, but it, when he lived. But all of this is a reference to the kingdom of God that is it, at Daniel's day had, was yet to come. But we've seen that already inaugurated with Christ uh, having come and, and begun, begun his kingdom. But so, yes, heaven is here. So, yes. Heaven. So, yes, that's where Jesus went to after he left this earth. Yes, that's he true. He got on yeah. the cross for yeah. our But one thing... Yeah, one thing we'll learn about um, the kingdom of God is it's not necessarily an earthly kingdom like all these other kingdoms. It transcends both earth and heaven. So turn over to chapter 7 then. So um, again, this this parallel that we see, we see it in chapter 2. We're going to see it again in chapters 7 through 9. So uh, look at verse 1 in chapter 7. I'll just read a portion of this. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And then I looked, as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear, it was raised up on one side, it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. 
It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. And as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great word, and that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. So you see, it's the same thing, right? Uh, now there's a lot of detail in there, and we'll touch on a little bit of that here in a minute. But Nebuchadnezzar saw a, a vision of four kingdoms that were then uh, overcome and, by the kingdom of God, which will uh, go forever. And this is the same thing Daniel sees. He sees four beasts. Those are four kingdoms. It, there's a parallel. But at the same time, the kingdom of God will o overcome and will, he will reign forever. Uh, and this one Daniel sees like the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Uh, he will be the king who will reign forever. So there's this parallel uh, between those two things. Um, and, and it's interesting, um, chapter 8 then zooms in and gives a little more info on the second and third kingdoms, uh, but the pattern's the same. Uh, God will be the one who reigns e eternally and ultimately. So uh, next, moving in closer, look at chapters 3 and 6. And these are the familiar stories that we know. In, in chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down to the king's image. Uh, and, in, and they display their faithfulness in this way. Look at verse 16 in chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You know, and as a result of their faithfulness and their refusal to bow down to this image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, they're cast into the furnace. Um, but what happens there? God delivers them out of the furnace, right? Amen. <clears throat> Similarly, we see the same thing over in, in Daniel chapter 6. Um, this time it's Daniel, uh, and the king has 
made a decree that no one can pray to any God except for him during this period of time. And what does Daniel do? He immediately goes to his room, opens his, his windows, and, and begins to pray to the God of heaven, just like he has always done. Um, and as a result of that, he is cast into the lion's den. And then look at uh, chapter 6, look at verse 19. Uh, this is Daniel spent the night in the lion's den. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. You know, so the, the story's the same. Uh, God's people who are faithful, even when they are persecuted, even to death, um, God delivers them ultimately, and He keeps um, His faithfulness to them uh, as they were faithful as well. So chapter 3, chapter 6 parallel one another. Um, so are you beginning to see the pattern here? Um, God will be the one who gets the glory. Um, he will save those who belong to Him. You know, it's the same thing that we keep seeing in all of these patterns. And then finally, um, we get to the center of, of this chiasm, and that's chapters 4 and 5. So in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar once again is seeking to glorify himself. So if you look in verse 28, here's, here's uh, Nebuchadnezzar's thought. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While these words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it was spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among all men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. You know, so Nebuchadnezzar exalts himself, and then God comes and humbles him. And the same thing in chapter 5, King Belshazzar is celebrating himself at a big party. They're getting drunk and he decides to bring out the, the vessels from the temple from Jerusalem that had been carried off into Babylon. And he decides to use these and to fill them up and everybody uh, use those to, to, for their drinking party, you know, probably their drinking games, whatever they, they were doing. Um, and as a result of this, as a result of the defiling of, of these articles of worship, then uh, a disembodied hand appears, starts writing on the wall. You know, it just totally freaks everybody out. Um, I don't know why. I, I mean, <laughs> so they call on Daniel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they called Daniel to interpret the writing. And look in chapter 5, look at uh, verse 24, look what Daniel says. It says, Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was ascribed, inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mini, mini, tekel, parzin. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mini, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, 
you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck. Proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. Uh, so again, here's the king exalting himself, uh, defiling the, the articles from God's temple, and God humbles him even to death. And really, the central, center of this chiasm is the central message of the book of Daniel. And it's spoken by Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4. Look at verse 34. At the, uh, chapter 4, verse 34. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So if you don't get anything else out of this study of the book of Daniel, Remember this one thing, right? At least acknowledge that God is sovereign and He's worthy of praise. You know, all of the leaders who stood in opposition to God were humbled and they will acknowledge that. And we should acknowledge it as well. You know, God is sovereign over all nations, all people, all times, and He is worthy of praise. So that's kind of Daniel as an organized unit kind of pointing to this central message that God is sovereign. Uh, so any questions on that so far? All right. Well, let's spend the rest of our time looking at some aspects of this repeating pattern that we see. So this pattern, God's enemies will try to usurp his glory, but ultimately God will not allow that to happen. So just think about Daniel. Think about the things we've touched on already. Who are God's enemies in the book of Daniel? You can name some names. Nebuchadnezzar, right? Nebuchadnezzar invades God's land. He carries off God's people in chapter 1. He sets up an image and demands that all people worship him instead of God, and he exalts himself. Um, and then we just saw that ultimately um, he will be humbled. But that's, you know, he set himself up in opposition to God. So yeah, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, enemy number one. Belshazzar, he defies the temple vessels in chapter 5. You know, he too set himself up as one to be praised, uh, and he will be the one who uh, is ultimately will be uh, not exalted. Who else? Any, anyone else? Those are the ones we've read about so far. Any others? The enchanters and the astrologers. Yeah, we, we, we uh, mentioned them in passing, but they claim to have power and authority, um, and God humbles them. They can't interpret the game, dreams. They are un, unable to do what they're called on to do. Yeah, God is sovereign. They're not. Any others? 
Yeah, the magicians along with the, the enchanters. Well, yeah, of course it's good. <laughs> Look over, look, there, you're right on all those, and, and there's more as well. So turn over to chapter 8. We're going to see another enemy of God in chapter 8. So in chapter 8 um, is a vision. We've, we've already talked about the four kingdoms. In chapter 8, Daniel receives a vision of a ram and a goat, and they really represent the second and third kingdoms. Um, so we're probably talking... And, and again, I caveat everything I'm telling you here. There's, there's uh, different interpretations of all of this. But generally speaking, um, the ram and the goat really kind of represent the Medo-Persian kingdom and the, the kingdom of Greece. Um, and so out of this kingdom, this third kingdom, comes another enemy of God. Look at uh, verse 8 in chapter 8. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of the heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it, together with the regular burnt offerings, because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Let's, let's stop right there. So there's this little horn that's talked about in this prophesy. And, and what does it say about it? He's going to become great. Um, he's going to end the regular burnt offerings and the sanctuary will be overthrown. So that's just all kind of a picture of the right worship of God that occurred in the temple there in Jerusalem. He's going to overthrow that. So he's going to set himself up as an enemy of God. He is a, a king who will come. He will come from the Greeks and will gain power. If we look over in chapter 11, we get a little more insight perhaps into this little horn that's talked about in chapter 8. Uh, look at verse 21 of chapter 11. So here again, talking about this little horn, in his place shall, or, or going to talk about it, in his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from, that, from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. And then skip down to verse 31. It says, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and uh, burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. So again, this idea here is that there will be one who will come, who will put away the right worship of God, who will come against God's people and will exalt himself. And it's interesting that this all happened about 400 years after the time of Daniel. Uh, a king came out of the Greek empire named Antiochus Epiphanes, um, and he gained power 
Um, he came to Jerusalem about 170 B.C., more or less, and he forbade the worship of the Most High. And instead, he entered the temple in Jerusalem. He set up an idol, an image of the Greek god Zeus, and he sacrificed pigs on, on the altar. You know, so all of these things were in direct defiance to what God had established in his law as the proper way to worship him. So he, he saw himself as the manifestation of Zeus. And so he was calling for people to worship him in the temple in Jerusalem. So he is clearly an enemy of the, the Most High God, right? And so then one final enemy that we see in Daniel, turn over to chapter 7. This enemy comes out of, of the fourth kingdom, which we believe more, more or less to be Rome, the Roman Empire. Um, and look at verse 7 in chapter 7. After this, again, we read this a minute ago. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what is left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. So again, another little horn, similar in language to the one we just read about in chapter 8. It says uh, he, he had a mouth speaking great things, and really those, that, that really means blasphemous things, things against the God of heaven. And um, then look at verse 24, a little more description about this, this little horn. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. So again, here is another little horn, another enemy of God that is talked about here. And notice how all of these enemies of God really do the same things. The pattern repeats itself over and over. They seek to gain power for themselves. They seek to gain glory for themselves. They seek to take away God's glory. Uh, and they seek to take away the right worship uh, that the people of God uh, are to do. <clears throat> and this just kind of emphasizes this pattern. It will keep happening over and over again. And it's interesting that um, the Apostle John, I think, kind of gives us a little bit of insight into this pattern. Um, in 1 John, 2, uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, John says this, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it's the last hour. So John talks about a pattern of Antichrist, one who is opposed to Christ. He says they've come, and they're going to continue to come. And I think what we see even in Daniel and other places is that ultimately that will be, there will be one who will kind of be the culmination of all of God's enemies at the end of the age. Um, and what will happen to this one? What will happen to this little horn or to this one who we might call Antichrist? 
We'll look then at, there again at what it says in, in verse 21 of chapter 7. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones. He shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the laws, and they shall be given into his hands for a time, times and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Here is the end of the matter. You know, so this, whoever this, this uh, little horn is, his end will come. The God of heaven will establish his kingdom and will overcome. Um, and that's the same pattern that we see to all of these enemies of God, right? The same thing with the little horn in chapter 8. Um, verse 24 in chapter 8 says, His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fear, destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning shall, he shall make deceit prosper uh, under his hand, and his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. You know, in the end, he will be broken. Um, and it's the same thing that, and it's interesting there, even think about that. It says, he shall be broken, but by no human hand. Does that remind you of anything that we've already seen in Daniel? What's that? Well, well, yeah, except that kind of was a human hand. Maybe a non-human hand. Yeah, yeah, it could be a supernatural hand. Yeah, it said back in chapter two, right? He said in verse thirty-four of chapter two, um, he says, "It says, uh, as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and broke them to pieces." Um, so, this. That was the kingdom of God, right? So again, the kingdom of God will come. God himself will put down this little horn in chapter 8. Um, and so God is reminding us through Daniel's narratives and through his visions that he is sovereign and no amount of wickedness will ultimately pr prevail. God will be the one who overcomes. And even if you just turn to the very last book of Daniel, chapter 12, verse 13, look at what it says. This is an angel talking to Daniel. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. You know, the promise given to Daniel is that ultimately he will rest and stand. You know, all of this terror will come upon the earth, all of these enemies of God. But ultimately, God will prevail. He will rule. He will rescue his people in the end. And, you know, we struggle a little bit to understand what Scripture says about the end times. 
you know, reading all this stuff in Daniel and going, what in the world does all of this mean? Uh, but ultimately, the thing to, to rest in is that God wins. You know, no matter what happens, no matter what we face, God ultimately is the one who will win that. Um, and even when we're a little confused about the, the uh, eschatology, the, the, the prophecies about the end, it's good, yeah, it's good to remember that the authors weren't confused. They may not have understood everything that God was revealing to them, but they were on the same page. You know, the, the overall narrative is, is true and sure. Um, God has promised to return. He's promised to establish His kingdom, and He will rescue His people, and, and His people will be with Him ultimately forever. And so um, what, what Daniel says here about these things is the same thing that Jesus says about these things, is the same thing that Paul says about these things, it's the same thing that John says about all these things. And just a couple of places where we can see the parallels, if you look in uh, Daniel chapter 7, for example, um, verses 13 and 14, again, he says, I saw in the, vi- in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Uh, that's, That's a great prophecy there. And if we wonder, well, who is this one who comes with the cloud of heaven? Uh, Listen to what Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 24. Um, He says, let me get there, Matthew 24. He says this in verse 29. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. You know, so Jesus says here, who is this one coming on the cloud of heavens? He says, it's me. He says, I'm the Son of Man who will come. And so you see, the, 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 it's the same picture that Daniel tells us. So, so we can rejoice in that continuity. Uh, another place, Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27 says this, Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to the sin, uh, to, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. 
And listen to what Paul says, which is uh, similar, something similar here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. Paul says this. He says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was, was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Uh, so, you know, we, we get this, uh, hint, this look at this lawless one, uh, and we're told both in Daniel and by Paul that he will be destroyed. Destruction will come upon him. Paul tells us it's Christ himself who will bring this destruction. And there's a lot of other parallels as well, particularly in the book of Revelation. We don't have time to get into all of that right now. But, uh, you know, again, the, the point is, is that God is sovereign and he's in control of all of these things. So just thinking through all of this, you know, this is, this is wild stuff. Um, how can we apply this? What's, what's the application from reading Daniel and prophecies and things like this? Is there any application? Yeah. Yeah, we can trust him, right? We don't know the details necessarily, but we know him. And we know he's trustworthy. He is worthy to be praised, and we just need to praise him every day and be a witness for him we, to other people. That's right. We need to praise him. We need to tell of his excellent greatness. Yeah, I think so. What else? How else can we apply this? You know, maybe one thing that we could ask is well, how did Daniel apply this? You know, Daniel is given. Uh, these incredible visions. Um, and, you know, what did all of these life experiences Daniel had and visions God gave him, what did they teach him? Well, let's turn to one last passage, chapter 9. Look at verses 1 and 2 there. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, the, uh, by descendant Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So Daniel is studying his Bible. He sees what Jeremiah wrote back in Jeremiah chapter 25, that the exile will be 70 years. And so at this point, Daniel can calculate that it's about time for the exile to be over. God has promised it'll be a period of 70 years. And so what does Daniel do with this knowledge that God is about to act? Well, look at verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Uh, Daniel prays. You know, Daniel hears what God's going to do. He knows God is faithful, that God's going to keep His promises. So what does he do? He prays. 
he prays, first of all, a prayer of confession. He thinks back on the exile. Why did we go into exile in the first place? And he, he confesses the sins of his people. And then he prays uh, for God to do what God promises that he will do. Verse 16, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. You know, so uh, Daniel prays for the things that God has already promised that he's going to do. Um, And I think that's a great lesson for us. Why should we pray for things that God has already promised that he's going to do? Is he not going to do them if we don't pray? You know, that's not really the point. The point is, is that we turn our hearts to God and we entreat him to be faithful. And we pray and we recognize that he is faithful. And that faithfulness of God uh, really should cause us to pray more. You know, the more we know that God is faithful, the more we know that God is sovereign over all things, should cause us to pray even more. You know, it shouldn't give us this idea, oh, well, God's going to do it anyway, so there's no point in praying. Uh, No, this is exactly what Daniel does, and I think it's a good uh, example for us to pray even in the midst of great trial. Uh, Pray to the Ancient of Days who has promised to defeat every enemy, including death. You know, that is the ultimate enemy. And, you know, this is really what John does at the close of Revelation. Um, in verse 20 of chapter 22 of Revelation, he's, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. You know, Jesus says, I'm coming soon. John prays, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Um, and so I think there's a good pattern of prayer for us in that. Well, that's taken all of our time. But any, any last question? Any last thoughts from Daniel? Oh, that's the last. Second and last. Chapter on the book of the Bible. That's where it ends. No, I think, I think what, what Solomon says at the end, fear God and keep his commandments. Why are they called? In the midst of all that was going on, Daniel was fearing God, not thinking what could happen. He was yeah. talking with his God, and he was keeping his commandments in the midst of it, trusting him with whatever Yeah. Amen. God's going to do what is right and good for his glory. And he promises that he will rescue his own people. So so we should rejoice in that. All right. Well, let me close this in prayer. Lord, thank you that it is true that you are sovereign, that you are good, that your glory uh, will be made known among the nations, among every tribe, language and people, uh, that you will humble your enemies that you will build up your people and take them to be with you. And so we praise you for that, and we eagerly look forward to it, Lord. We thank you for your word. Help us to be open to hearing and doing what you've called us to. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.